Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read a couple of verses from the scriptures, and then we'll uh, continue to unfold this book of the Bible. Uh, when I don't teach Sunday school, I, was not, I have not been teaching in the month of October. Uh, I have the privilege of visiting our other Sunday school classes. I barge in uninvited and uh, join in with them, and uh, we have excellent teachers in our congregation. When you bring your children and entrust them into their care, they are well taught and well cared for and uh, wisely loved. Some of those classes, it's like herding cats and they do it really well, these teachers that God has given. He has given us all gifts and we serve in the body and I'm grateful this morning for those uh, men and women. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Here's what the teacher who wrote this book says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest at the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. I'm not sure if I have succeeded or not yet, but by now, when we read Ecclesiastes, you should feel equally comforted and disturbed. Uh, The goal of this book is to equip you to lead a meaningful life, but to lead that meaningful life in a meaningless world to find satisfaction in a dissatisfying world. Ecclesiastes, in one sense, wants you to be the happiest person at the dumpster fire. Uh, Do you remember the fairy tale from Hans Christian Andersen? Uh, It's called The Princess and the Pea. Do you remember this story? So once upon a time, there was a prince, and he was looking for a bride. He wanted to get married, but he had to marry an authentic princess, and none of the princesses that he knew uh, were satisfactory. One night, during a terrible storm, uh, there was a knock at the castle door. A young woman was standing at the door looking for shelter. She soaked uh, through from the rain. She looked in terrible shape. She came into the, the palace and claimed to be a princess. And the prince's mother, the queen, though she had her doubts, what would a princess be doing out in the middle of of this terrible storm by herself? So they decided to test her. They decided to test her discriminating tastes. So when it came time for her to go to bed, they, they took her to the guest room, and underneath several mattresses and 20 feather beds, they placed one tiny pea under, under all that pile and said goodnight. In the morning, they asked her, how did you sleep last night? She said, terrible, terrible. There was something hard in the bed. I'm sure I have bruises from the terrible lump in the mattresses. And her keen senses proved to the queen that she was indeed a princess with discriminating taste. Very soon, the prince and princess were married, and they lived happily ever after, which is a load of hogwash. (laughs) 
How in the world, if your spouse is this particular and this sensitive, how in the world will you ever make her happy? Never. Marriage is a lot more uncomfortable than just a pee under your mattress. None of us can be like that princess and survive in this world. Uh, We live in a rough world. We live in a broken world. It's a narrow world. And Ecclesiastes is here to help you get a good night's rest and enjoy a long day's labor in the midst of all of this trouble that is in the world. The way the book helps us to do this, of course, is by broadening our vision or maybe heightening our vision. We are inclined as human beings to try to define life and live life and create meaning under the sun, as if God does not exist and he's not part of the world. But the book of Ecclesiastes tells us we have a broader vision. It's a vision as big and broad and wide and high as the Lord Jesus himself. And so we're learning to lead meaningful lives in a meaningless world. Even in a world where God, what God does seems mysterious to us at times. In a world that's beset with troubles and injustice and death. When we come to chapter 5, we come to some counsel that the teacher gives us in how we respond to these troubles, particularly when we go to worship. It warns us that there are two ways to worship. David Gibson is a pastor of a church in Aberdeen, Scotland. He wrote a wonderful book about Ecclesiastes called Living Life Backwards. And in the book, he talks about a show that's on uh, television in the United Kingdom. It's called Songs of Praise. This is the sort of show they would show in the United States on Sunday morning, some local channel. And when you saw it come by, you might be tempted to flip right on by. But here's how it works in the United Kingdom, Songs of Praise. So the camera zooms in on this beautiful old church. It's probably been there a thousand years. And it's got all the beautiful stonework and the beautiful wood carvings inside and the stained glass. And the camera pans over the, the, the sanctuary that is filled, filled to capacity with happy-looking, beautiful worshipers. They're British, they have bad teeth, but they look good. And, um, and, and the organ at the appointed moment starts playing a song and they all stand in unison and they sing this beautiful hymn all the way through all of the, verse, the verses in a beautiful uh, song. And, and, and the camera pans back to the narrator who's sitting in the, the, um, the, the uh, balcony and he says, What truly moving words they are. What an exquisite rendition of that song. Now we read this passage uh, and, and imagine the teacher's there and the camera has zoomed over the church and it pulls back and there's the teacher. What does the teacher say about the worship that's going on? The teacher says, that was the worst thing I have ever seen in my life. Your worship was terrible. Those people might as well have stayed home for all the good it did them. In fact, they're worse off because of this worship. So what's so bad about the worship that the teacher has been observing here? There's two ways to worship. We want to practice one and not the other. Here's the first one. It's the bad one. That's what we're going to talk about. I want to borrow the language of Ecclesiastes 5. First way to worship we could describe here is the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools. I think that the key to unfolding this entire passage, these seven verses, is actually found at the end of verse 3, or the middle of verse 3, actually, the end of the first line. Uh, It's a proverb um, the the teacher is, is repeating. A dream comes when there are many cares. 
cares. He's thinking about someone who has a lot of cares. The word care here refers to the trouble or the stress, the, the, the pain, the strain that's brought on by hard work, that's brought on by toil and labor. So here's a guy who's going to worship. He's had a bad week. He's worked really hard and he's tired. He's bent down. He's, he's struggling. Everybody knows what this is like, right? Um, haven't you gone through seasons of life where you think to yourself, I don't care how much I'm getting paid. I just need a day off. Or uh, you wake up in the morning with this sense of dread about everything that's going to take place that day, all that you have to do. I had a job during seminary that I really did not like, and that was the first time in my life that I realized that the weekend is not long enough to make up a five days of troublesome toil. So here's a guy, here's this person who's going to worship, and he's just beaten down. Well, how do you worship? Don't offer the sacrifice of fools, the teacher says. Here's how he describes it. In fact, I want to describe the sacrifice of fools in, in, in three phrases that the teacher brings out. So first, when, when fools worship, they offer sacrifices that mean nothing. They offer sacrifices that mean nothing. Look how in verse 1, he pairs these two phrases together at the end. So there's this person who goes to offer the sacrifice of fools. They show up at their temple and the, the temple and they brought their sheep or their goat or their birds and the sacrifice is there and, and he's, he's genuinely offering and he's doing what the law commands, but it's paired with this phrase, he's offering the sacrifice of fools, but the fool doesn't know that he's doing wrong. The fools, fools don't know that. But in other words... There's no connection between the sacrifice they're making and the lives that they are leading during the week. Um, now, my translation says they don't know how to, uh, to do wrong. That's a good translation. Um, it, uh, it, it helps us understand the cluelessness of these worshipers. The Hebrew is actually more provocative. The Hebrew says, literally, they do not know how to do wrong. They do not know how to do wrong. That's puzzling. They do not know how to do wrong. It makes them sound, on the one hand, it makes them sound like they're so innocent that they, they just don't know how to do wrong. If you told them to lie, they wouldn't know how to do it because they just don't know how to do wrong. Actually, the text means the opposite. It means the very opposite. It means what, what he's saying here is, is that they're so callous, they're so thoughtless, they have no conscience. They have no sense that they're doing wrong at all. There's nothing that stops them, that tells them that they're doing wrong. They don't know how to do wrong because wrong is all they know how to do. Uh, they just plow through it without any sense of, of right or wrong. They don't have a category for wrong. They offer sacrifices at the temple, but there's no connection between the sacrifice and how they're actually living. Their worship is a thoughtless habit. It's disconnected from the reality of the rest of their lives. It's something they check off and then they go on with the rest of life without even thinking about what they did at the temple and how it might affect the rest of their lives. That's not the way sacrifices are supposed to work. Sacrifices are supposed to be costly gifts. At this time, they were offering lambs, of course, still in the temple. At the, and, and you're supposed to go to your flock and get the best animal that you have in the flock. 
the lamb that was spotless, without any blemishes, no deformities, no illnesses. Find the lamb in your flock that could win the grand champion ribbon at the fair. Find that one and bring it to the temple. Sacrifices are supposed to be costly. Do you remember uh, what David said? David, toward the end of his life and his uh, uh, reign, wanted to offer a sacrifice and he wanted to do it on the, the, threshing flo- uh, the, the property, a uh, threshing floor owned by the man, a uh, man by the name of Aruna. And, and David says, I want to buy your threshing floor. I want to offer sacrifices right here. And Aruna says, oh, no, 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 I'll give it to you. And David says, oh, <laughs> I will not offer sacrifices to the Lord that cost me nothing. A sacrifice is supposed to be costly. It's also supposed to be representative. There's supposed to be a connection between you and this sacrifice. It's, it's not disconnected from your life. It's intimately tied to your life. You would uh, bring the animal to the temple, and before the animal was slain, you, maybe your father, maybe your husband, as representative of the family, would place his hand on the head of the animal and confess sins. We, we, have, we have not worshipped the Lord God solely. We have not honored the Sabbath. We have coveted. We have lied. We have stolen. We have committed adultery. And then, uh, with a knife, that animal's neck would be slit, the blood would be spilled, and the animal would die. You're supposed to see a connection between the words that came out of your mouth and what happens to this animal. You were supposed to stop and reflect on, on this sacrifice and your own life. You could watch from the outside of the courtyard of the temple. Your father leads the sheep in to the temple courtyard. You know that sheep really well because you named that sheep. You raised that sheep. You washed that sheep. You fed that sheep. He's perfect. You know he's perfect. Dad leads him in. And dad comes out with an empty rope and a little bit of blood splattered on his clothes. Came from that sheep. The sheep is dead. It's costly. It should make you think. Now the connection that the New Testament makes is, is very clear, of course. The Lord Jesus, John the Baptist said of the Lord Jesus that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the best representative of humanity that has ever walked the earth. The Lord Jesus is the best of the flock. He's the best of all of us. There has never been a specimen of humanity like him. Of course, he's the God-man, but but there has never been a more perfect human being ever. No human being more wise, more courageous, more patient, more insightful, more powerful, more gentle, more just than he is. If he was in your school you would want to be in all of his classes. You would want to sit at his table. If you're on his team, when you're out on the field warming up before the game, you want him in the middle uh, leading you through your exercises. You want him to lead your company. You want him to pastor your church. If you lived in Nazareth and Jesus was growing up, he was the one that you wanted your daughter to marry. Because there's no one ever been no one there has never been anyone like him you want to be on his team you want to be in his platoon you want to be in his family every time all the questions without question he is the best of us but then the lord jesus is led to the place of slaughter 
And we read about it in every one of the four Gospels, the blood-splattered pages of the New Testament. That should be my blood that's shed, not his. should be mine. Fools don't worship that way. Fools don't stop long enough to think about it. They never make the connection between their own spiritual condition and what they're doing at the temple. I wonder if you ever do. Do you stop and and think about the reorienting nature of worship? So when we gather together, we followers of Jesus on Sunday morning, we have this basic confession. It is central to everything that we do. Our confession is Jesus is Lord. This is the most basic Christian confession. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over everything. He's Lord over everything I am, everything I have, everything I do. He's Lord over everything that I see. Jesus reigns in every school, at every company, in every state courthouse. Jesus reigns. He's he's Lord. Now, between the time that you made that confession, we made that confession last Sunday, and and us making this confession this Sunday, there have been 10,000 claims on your loyalty besides the Lord Jesus. Your football coach, your teacher, your boss, Facebook, (laughs) and worst of all, yourself. You have made claims on yourself that are not true because Jesus is Lord. I keep slipping up. I keep slipping up and I make grand proclamations about my, my free time and my money and my sleep schedule that y'all keep interrupting and you better not anymore because it's mine. But Jesus is Lord. I'm not Lord. Jesus is Lord. So we say that, we sing it, we pray it, and this is the reorienting nature of worship. Fools don't worship that way because there's no connection between their sacrifices and the way that they live. Now here's a second characteristic of the sacrifice of fools. When fools worship, they use words that are thoughtless. Words that are thoughtless. A lot of them, a lot of words that are thoughtless. Look at verse 2. It says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. He he says at the end of verse 2, Let your words be few. These foolish worshipers have a lot of cares and they are are met with a lot of words. We already talked about that proverb in verse 3. A dream comes when there are many cares. I'm not exactly sure what the teacher has in mind. I have a couple of ideas. On the one hand, it's possible that he's reflecting this ancient Hebrew idea that, that um, if you have long, toilsome days, it leads to dreams at night, sleepless nights. Now, in our culture, where do dreams come from? Dreams come from you ate sausage with onions for dinner. Oh, I had terrible, terrible dreams because of what I ate for dinner, right? But in this culture, they would talk about your dreams. A lot of dreams come from a lot of troubles during the day. You have many cares, so you have a lot of dreams at night. Lots of cares, lots of dreams. Uh, a fool, lots of words. It's the connection. Or I actually wonder if he's not reflecting on the idea in this, par- this proverb that when we have a lot of trouble, it becomes really easy to dream about uh, living a different life. 
you know, you're at work and it's really bad. It's been a bad week and you find yourself fantasizing about walking in your boss's office and saying, I quit! And you make a grand exit and the company falls apart because you're not there anymore. Or, you know, you, you wake up in the morning on Tuesday and you think to yourself, oh, I just, I just dream about being at the shore. Everything's better at the shore. Can't we be at the shore and not going to work today? Dreams. Dreams come from many cares. And, and these cares are so bad, I'm just going to talk to God. In fact, I will say anything to get God on my side. Here are all my troubles, God. Take them. I'm, I'm going to think about them. I'm going to talk about them. I'm not really interested in what you have to say. I just listen and fix it, fix it, fix it. God's the divine waiter. And on Sunday morning, he comes to your table and he says, what, uh, and, and you say, waiter, 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 listen to what I want. I want a garden salad, I want dressing on the side, I want no tomatoes, I want extra cucumbers, I want breadsticks, two kinds, one with butter and one without. Make my steak, I want medium rare on one side and well done on the other side. I want my baked potato to be not less, one, one less degrees than 335 when you set it on the table. Words, 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 words. Write them all down, God. Write them all down, God, and come and fix my life. Lots of words, lots of haste. In 1986, when he was awarded the Broadcaster of the Year Award, Ted Koppel said something. It's twice as true today as it was back in the last century. He said, Consider this paradox. Almost everything that is publicly said these days is recorded. Almost nothing of what is said today is worth remembering. Jesus said something about a lot of words, didn't he, in Matthew chapter 6? And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Verse 2 tells us about haste, haste in your heart. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart. John Bunyan said, In prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. Some of you know Eric Crichton. Do you know Eric Crichton? Eric Crichton uh, is in his 90s now. For a long time, he was the pastor of Calvary Church. A good, good man. Uh, when he was retired uh, 15 or 16 years ago, Eric uh, used to visit on Sunday nights for our worship service. He would come and uh, join us. I should have been then more intimidated than I was, but I didn't know enough to be frightened that Eric Crichton was in the room. Actually, Eric Crichton could not have been more kind uh, to me. So one time, Eric Crichton spoke here at our church. It was a funeral, and he and I were sitting up here next to, next to each other, and it was his turn to speak, and, and he didn't move. And I thought to myself, come on, man, get up and go. Didn't say anything to him. I almost nudged him. Come on, it's time to move. Eric Crichton would not be moved, because Eric Crichton is not in a hurry. Not in a hurry when God's people gather together. There's no haste. There's a place in worship to be slow and deliberate and ponderous. Fools think that if they use enough words, God will be moved. But you cannot motivate God. You cannot manipulate God with many words. Here's a third characteristic of the sacrifice of fools. Number three, fools make promises they don't intend to keep. Fools make promises they do not intend to keep. 
That's actually the focus of verses 4 through 7. There's this long warning about vows. We don't talk about vows very much. Today we're going to talk about vows more than we have in a long time. A vow is a promise that you make to God in exchange for granting a uh, request in prayer. So you make this promise to God. It, it, It goes like this in this form. God, if you do this, then I will do this. Usually vows involve sacrifices or or gifts of money. You have to be careful with vows because it can be easy to think you're bribing God or manipulating God. It's an optional part of the Old Testament worship. There's no command in the Bible to offer vows in worship. The most famous vow, I think, comes from that dear woman, Hannah, in the book of Samuel. 1 Samuel, verse 11, she's praying for a son. And look at the if and the then here. And uh, uh, 1 Samuel 1, 11. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. So she made a promise. If you give me a son, I will dedicate him to the Lord. He will be a Nazarite. He'll have, he'll live under a vow. A vow was a way to show God how serious you were about this request. I really need this. And it preloads the thanksgiving. If, God, you do this, I will express my gratitude in this way. Vows are optional, but if you make one, you better be prepared to fulfill it. That's a repeated message of Scripture. Deuteronomy 23, 21. Look what it says. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. That sounds like Ecclesiastes 5, doesn't it? Now... We don't talk about vows very much, so I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent, and and I want to try to explain what might be a puzzling passage. Um, You can turn if you want to. I'm going to read it. But if you want to turn to Numbers chapter 30, I bet you have read this passage a couple times in your life, and maybe it's caused you to have a question or two. I'm going to try to explain it. Numbers 30. I may regret this, but I'm going to try. Numbers 30, look what Numbers 30, we'll start reading in verse 1, I'm going to read the first nine verses of Numbers 30. Here's more law about vows. Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands, verse 2. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word but must do everything he said. Keep your vows. When a young woman, still living in her father's household, makes a vow to the Lord or obligates herself by a pledge, and her father hears about her vow or pledge but says nothing to her, then all her vows and every pledge by which she obligated herself will stand. But if her father forbids her when she hears about it, none of her vows or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. The Lord will release her because her father has forbidden her. If she marries after she makes a vow or after her lips utter a rash promise by which she obligates herself and her husband, verse 7, hears about it but says nothing to her, then her vows or the pledges by which she obligates herself will stand. But if her husband forbids her when he hears about it, he nullifies the vow that obligates her to the rash promise by which she obligates herself and the Lord will release her. Any vow or obligation taken by a widow or divorced woman will be binding on her. So does this trouble you at all? Maybe I should have skipped this passage. 
Actually, not, not really. Sign of God's goodness here. The rest of the passage, the rest of Numbers 30, continues with this and explains some of the specifics about how a husband could nullify uh, the vows of his wife. Remember the basic principle. The basic principle in the Bible, you must fulfill your vows. And what Numbers 30 actually does let us do know is that both men and women could go to the temple or the tabernacle and offer vows. That in itself would be revolutionary in this culture at this time and day and age that a woman would be able to make a vow is something that would be unusual. And here's the, the rules for this woman who makes a vow. Even, even widows and divorced women... You know, in so many cultures, they don't matter. Even widows and divorced women can make vows that God will hear and accept and take seriously. But why is this nullification allowed? Why does, why does it happen? On the one hand, it reflects the reality of economics. The father, the husband, has the chief ownership of the family resources. He has final say over what can be dedicated. That's just the economic reality. But this also, this nullification, is a form of protection in two different ways. On the one hand, it's a protection against rash vows. Do you know what's true about us human beings? We make foolish vows. We're rash sometimes. And we need the warnings in the Bible about fulfilling our vows because sometimes we make rash vows that we later don't want to fulfill. And, and, and here, a wife and a daughter, not a son, not a widow, there's this extra layer of protection. You have someone watching over you, caring for you. Ideally, ideally, a husband hearing his wife's vow would say, sweetheart, your dedication to God is wonderful. We'll take what you have vowed and we'll set it aside. And when God hears and answers your prayer, it will be all ready and all set for you to fulfill your vow. That's excellent. That's awesome. That, that's the way it should work. I, apparently that's the way it worked in Hannah's life. Her husband heard her vow and said, yes, yes, we will take Samuel, his son too. We will take Samuel and we will bring him to the temple and present him to the Lord in fulfillment of the vow you have made. That, that's how it should work. Wise women with wise husbands making vows to God. But sometimes we're not so wise. It's good to have someone to watch over us. Actually, there's other protection too because sometimes wise women have foolish husbands. So a wise woman makes a vow and her knave of a husband says, Are you kidding? No, no way. Uh-uh. That's not going to happen. What does a woman do? What does a woman do who has made a vow to God and God expects you to fulfill your vows if her husband is using the economic and physical power that he has to keep her from fulfilling her vows? What's she going to do before God? God says, wise woman, if you have a foolish husband and he will not allow you to fulfill your vow, I will not hold you responsible for it. I'll hold him responsible for his foolishness. But, but you are free from a vow that uh, your foolish husband will not allow you to fulfill. So this is protection. Numbers 30, there's protection here. The vows that we are most familiar with in our culture, of course, are wedding vows, right? Wedding vows. Uh, when I lead a wedding ceremony, it's an occasion of great joy. 
one point of clarification from last week. If you at your wedding read Ecclesiastes 4 about a cord of three strands, I won't make fun of you. I really won't. I'll be blessed by the reading of God's word and we'll move on. Okay, so just a point of clarification. But what happens during a wedding? All right. So Father the Bride marches his daughter down the aisle. It's occasion of great joy. Most of the time, men escort women on their right arm. Father the Bride leads her down, though, on the left arm. The reason being, when they get down front, he's in the middle. He's in the middle between the bride and the groom. There he stands. And I make these poor fathers stand here forever. I, we pray, we read the Bible, I talk about the gospel. It's long, long they stand here. And then at some point in time, I ask the bride and groom about promises. It's time for you to make promises. Promises to God. Here's the question I ask. Will you have this man, this woman, to be your husband or wife? And, and will you promise your life to her in all love and honor, in all duty and service, in all faith and tenderness, to live with her and cherish her according to the ordinance of God and the holy bond of marriage? And they respond by saying, I do. Yes, I do have. I will have this man. In this, that will, I, will, I will be married. And dad's there. Dad is right there, chief and primary witness to these vows. Huh. Dad, this is your last chance. This is your last chance to say no because you're standing here as chief witness to these vows, to hear of them. Because God takes promises very seriously. Keep them. Look how, these pass- how this passage works. Verse 5, It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Or uh, verse 6, to-, to make a vow and not fulfill it is sin. And don't protest when the temple messenger, now who is this? The text just says messenger. Some translations say angels. Don't, don't protest to the angel. I, I think my, this translation is right. So you make a vow and then the priest sends somebody, when God answers your request, the priest sends somebody to your house to collect a vow. Don't say at that point in time, yeah, I really didn't mean it. It was a mistake. You shouldn't have said that. God holds you accountable for rash vows. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Have you ever made a promise like this? Um, Sometimes it's a matter of desperation. God, if you let me get into this school that I've applied to, I promise I'll go to church every Sunday while I'm there. Please, please, please. God, if you give me a husband, I promise I'll be a good wife. If, if, If you give me children, God, I promise I will never ask you for anything else as long as I live. I promise. That's a terrible promise because you pray for children. You'll pray a lot more when they come, trust me. Right? Now, we don't make vows. We don't talk about vows that much like the teacher is worried about, um, like the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy warn us about. Mostly we don't make vows like this or think about this very much because of what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Look what Matthew 5.33 says. 
Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black or grow, as I've testified. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So this is not an absolute prohibition that Jesus is offering about vows or oaths or swearing. Um, Jesus is, is saying here, though, that when his followers speak, when we say things, we mean it. We speak honestly. Followers of Jesus don't need to say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Because when we speak, we keep our promises. Fools don't. We've all been tempted to make rash promises like this, to get out of troubles, to bribe God with empty words. God is not impressed with empty promises. But desperate fools in desperate times sometimes worship this way. Now, there's a better way to worship during days of increased care. When you really feel the weight of the broken world, there is a better way to worship This is not the sacrifice of fools. Let's call this better way to worship the worship of the wise. That will match. The worship of the wise. Verse 1 begins, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. Now, we're familiar with this biblical analogy. The Bible wants to talk to us all about how we walk. Walk. He's not particularly concerned with your gait. He's he's thinking about your lifestyle. But I wonder, guard your steps. You wonder if he's thinking about Moses Moses, take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. Guard your steps, Moses. Maybe. Here are two characteristics of the worship of the wise. First, it is worship that responds to God as he is. It's worship that responds. Wise worship is an appropriate response to the God who is, God as he is. Verse 2 says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Or in other words, you and God are not equals. He's exalted on high. You're not in his league. The emphasis of this, God is in the heavens and you are on the earth, is not so much on separation. He's, in, he's there and we're here. The, the emphasis is on exaltation. He is exalted in heaven. He is sees and knows all. He is above all things. You are limited. You're limited in your understanding. You're limited in time. You're limited in your power. But God is not. He's not uncaring in his exalted position, but he's still above us. Remember Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. How do you respond to a God like that? Verse 7 tells us at the end, fear God. That reverence, reverent response to God. The awe that is due Him. It's a major theme in the book of Ecclesiastes, this fear of God. We don't master God. We don't understand him completely. We're not biologists studying God like dissecting a frog. We revere him. We fear him. We recognize and acknowledge his supremacy over all things. He is above all things, all of the meaningless things that we human beings are tempted to toy with. He is supreme over all of the meaninglessness that life in this broken world consists of. He is above all things. 
Whether you realize it or not, you were made for awe. We usually don't turn for help to the pages of the journal Psychology Today, but in April 2016, they had an article called It's Not All About You, and it was about awe. Here's some of the lines from the article. University of Pennsylvania researchers defined awe as the emotion of self-transcendence, a feeling of admiration and elevation in the face of something greater than the self. A popular theoretical physicist wrote, awe gives us an existential shock. You realize that you're hardwired to be a little selfish, but you are also dependent on something bigger than yourself. Being enraptured in that way uh, helps to remove the tyranny of the ego. You walk in and you think you're something when you come to church, and then you see God and you say, God is supreme. I'm not the something that I thought I was. Robert Leahy uh, said, awe is the opposite of rumination. It clears away inner turmoil with a wave of outer immensity. Wonder pulls us together, it says. It's a counterforce to all that seems to be tearing us apart. Fearing is God is commanded in the Bible. It reflects reality. It's good for you. Here's the truth the Bible teaches in various ways and at various times. The way you view God himself will always determine how you worship him. How you view God will always determine how you worship him. Look at one of the most well-known passages in the Old Testament. So Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Who's the God who exists? Who is he? He is one. There is one true God. And how do you worship the one true God? As one whole person with all of your strength and with all of your soul and with all of your might, united as one. To worship the one true God, you come as one whole person with everything you have to worship the one true God. How you view God will always determine how you worship him. God is not your BFF. He's not the one with whom you spill the tea. He is in heaven and you are on earth. I wonder how you got ready for church today. It's always harder to get ready for the day on Sunday than any other day of the week, isn't it? Why It's so much easier to get ready for school or get ready for work than it is on Sunday to get ready for church. But you're here. You made it. Good. That's great. You showed up. Good. Yes. But I'm interested in how you got ready. Most of you showered, which the people around you appreciate. They're thankful. You got dressed. It's good. It's not a requirement in our church to dress up for church. Um, it's, it's not a biblical requirement. I, I don't have any authority to tell you how to, to mandate a certain level of dress for church. You come as your conscience tells you. But, but realize that there are those in our church who, who, who dress to a higher level. They're not doing so because they like to feel uncomfortable. They do so because they're communicating voluntarily something about the God that we worship. So you got dressed, combed your hair, you brushed your teeth, you put on makeup, you ate breakfast. You made it. Here you are. Good. Sometimes when your kids are little, that's all you can do is you made it through the door. Here I am. You got ready, but did you prepare? Because the way you view God always determines the way you worship, so did you prepare? 
On Wednesday nights, uh, we pray at prayer meeting for the preaching of the word. We pray for our Sunday services. And one of the people at prayer meeting always says, what's the passage? What's the passage? And, and she writes it down. I presume it's because she's going to read it before Sunday. It's always printed in the bulletin, too. Do you know that the bulletin is on the website every Friday? You can go on every Friday and look at our website and see what songs we're going to sing on, uh, in church on Sunday. The, the songs are very carefully selected, and they have lyrics that are uh, thought about in advance. I'm not trying to add another burden to you for the week. I'm not trying to add another burden to you. Some of you are in the season of life, again, where getting here is a major triumph. Just getting here is a major triumph. But I wonder if you prepared today in a way that is commensurate with the God who is. Our Sunday mornings are a lot of things. They're a lot of things. Uh, they're a family reunion. When family reunions, when families get together, they, they laugh, they're loud, sometimes they fight. <laughs> so we get together, we catch up, we commiserate. That's what we do because Sunday mornings, it's a family reunion. But there should be moments when we gather together that we tremble before God. The God who is. How can it be otherwise when we gather around to make the confession that Jesus is Lord? I hope that when, when, when visitors come to grace, they recognize the sign of this family meeting. It's a family meeting. I hope our services are encouraging in that sense. I hope they're not chiefly entertaining. I hope they're not chiefly us trying to sell the product that is Grace Baptist Church of Millersville. Don't you want them to see us when we worship together, uh, worshiping the God that we revere? Because he's the God who is. Now here's the second characteristic of the worship of the wise. Listening, listening. Verse 1 says, go near to listen. Here's the chief difference between the sacrifice of fools and the worship of the wise. Listening, listening. Fools talk and talk and talk. They give God a list of all the things that they want and they are satisfied with just unburdening themselves and they don't have very much interest in hearing what God has to say. Do you think that God might have something to say to people who bring many cares to him? Christianity is a listening faith. We're hearing people. Listen to what David Gibson wrote. I, I quoted him a little bit ago. He said, The ear is the Christian's primary sense organ. Listening to what God has said is our main spiritual discipline. We need, to tell, we need someone to tell us to listen because we want to look and speak more than we want to listen. When it comes to relating to God, we are out of order as far as using our sense organs goes. The things we see and the things we can touch dominate the way we perceive reality. We are fundamentally active creatures. We are what we do. But Ecclesiastes says that we become more human when we are what we receive. Life is a gift and God's word is the most precious gift of all. To be honored and loved and treasured above all things. Ecclesiastes is one long meditation on the need to use our ears for God's word alongside our eyes in God's world. Remember how Deuteronomy 6 begins? Hear, O Israel. Listen. Listen. And then the passage in Deuteronomy 6, take God's word in. Soak it into your lives. Listen. Psalm 46, look what it says. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burn offerings and sin offerings you did not require. It's, a fr it's an unusual phrase. My ears you have opened. 
D.A. Carson says that his mother, who is English, used to yell at her children when they were not listening to her. She would say to them, dig out your ears. Dig out your ears. There's something in there that's keeping my words from getting in there. So dig out your ears. God, you have opened my ears so that I can listen to you. We are a listening people more than we're a speaking people. We come to listen. We come to find help and comfort and guidance from God to deal with the meaninglessness of life. We don't come and dump a bunch of words hoping that the volume will make God move. We come to listen. Jesus himself is the word. Tell us what to do. Speak to us. Help us. I haven't done this for a while, but I used to occasionally. On Sunday mornings, I would invite the congregation before we look into the word, bow their heads, pray, something like this. God, if you have something for me to say today, help me to listen. If you have something for me to hear today, if you have something to say to me today, I am willing to listen. I know it's an old saying. It's an old saying. You have one mouth and two ears because God intends you to listen twice as much as you talk. You've heard that, right? Probably from your mother. How much more necessary is that when we gather together? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we confess to you that our minds... My mouth, my mind is incapable of speaking of you as you deserve to be described. The best we can do sometimes is to repeat what you have said in your word. You are in heaven and we are on earth. We we confess to you our inadequacy and, and we confess to you, Father, how often we get distracted Lord, I know there are men and women in this building who are bowed down with many cares. And their temptation is to rush in here and, and dump everything out. I'm grateful to you that you're a good father and you tell us to pour our hearts out to you. But Lord, make us listening people. I thank you for your grace. It is evident in our church there are This has been the cry of our church for many, many years. We want to hear what the Word says. Oh, increase our faith. Open our ears. Make them bigger so that we might hear from you. Lord, would you in your kindness, would you in your kindness provide help and comfort and hope for those who are bowed down with many cares and feel it deeply this morning you are in the heavens and we are on the earth and you command us to revere you increase our reverence increase our awe we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus we ask this thing, these things together saying amen